long-haired preachers come out every night They'll try to tell you what's wrong and what's right But when asked about something to eat They will answer in voices so sweet How are Jesuits hiring people? How are they treating workers? How are they engaging their own class identity? What are their economic beliefs and policies? All of these different things. A lot of this stems from my present day interest of organizing workers and organizing unions. That's Brother Ken Homan from Georgetown University on the All Who Labor podcast. Host Anna Noah talks with Brother Ken about the distance between what we say we believe and how those values are lived out, particularly as it relates to the Jesuits. The conversation stretches from topics further in the past, such as slavery, to more current labor activism at universities. And on Labor History in Two... The year was 1833. That was the day that the Oberlin Collegiate Institute was founded in north-central Ohio. Today, it's known as Oberlin College. The college was the project of two Presbyterian ministers, John J. Seifert and Philo Stewart. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. A quick note on timing before we begin this shorter one-interview episode. I recorded my interview with Brother Homan in December of 2022, so things may have changed in regard to the union drives that he mentions. I'm Anna Nowak, and this is All Who Labor. Brother Ken Homan is a Jesuit of the Midwest province. He is currently working on his history dissertation at Georgetown University. He studies the relationship between the Jesuits, the working class, and worker justice in St. Louis. Brother Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about your current research. Why St. Louis? Why the Jesuits? Why work of justice? Yeah, absolutely. So there are, we'll say, two categories of reasons. One is just I grew up in St. Louis. It's very near and dear to me, very familiar. And so I have a, a little sense of the nuances and some of the culture there. And so part of it is it's just fun um, <laughs> you know, to, to get a dissertation done you have to at least have a little interest in it, I think. So there's that part of it. The other piece is that, you know, we use the phrase lived religion a lot in historical studies. So how do people actually appropriate and live out their faith? You know, the church may say X, Y, Z rules, or these are the ways that you're supposed to pray. How do people actually do that? Well, a lot of the research prior to this has been about lay people, which has been incredibly important has really focused on how do lay people actually understand their own faith. We haven't applied that as much to vowed religious or to clergy, to people in religious orders. And I, I think that it creates a little bit of a bifurcation of, oh, well, the laity live out their faith in a variety of ways. Clergy are lockstep and do exactly all these things, which, as we know, is simply not true. Um, and so for me, wanting to study the relationship between then faith and class 
and how our Jesuits and how are my fellow Jesuits, the predecessors, how are they hiring people? How are they treating workers? How are they engaging their own class identity? What are their economic beliefs and policies? All of these different things. A lot of this stems from my present day interest of organizing workers and organizing unions. So trying to figure out and examine what is some of the background, what is some of the history to that. And so there's a whole variety of Jesuits who are very involved in labor justice work. And there are some real big hero figures, which is awesome. They certainly show up in my work. But I also want to look at kind of what are the everyday machinations of like St. Louis University, for example, who are we hiring? You know, this even goes back to our slaveholding. So who are we enslaving and what kind of work are they doing on our campuses? And I want to be real deliberate when I say our and my, because that's part of my own legacy and part of, I think, the the rectification of the past is um, having to learn from it and also be willing to admit that it is my own past. Can you talk a little bit about slavery and worker justice and what you found through your work? Yeah, absolutely. So... In St. Louis, the first enslaved people were forced from Maryland to Missouri when the Jesuits post-restoration returned to Missouri. They uh, forced foreign enslaved people with them and purchased, sold, rented, borrowed enslaved people throughout the years then. Missouri got rid of slavery before other states did. Some of that is because of the just the, the communities that were there and engaged in that kind of work and engaged in emancipation work. The Jesuits themselves, similar to other organizations, transitioned to tenant farming uh, at a, kind of our farming in rural areas, and then depended on low-wage black labor in the city area. And so, for example, enslaved people out at the farms, where the novitiate was up in Florissant, Missouri, did kind of the typical farm manual labor that you would imagine. And then in the city did a lot of cooking and cleaning. Um, so they like washed all of the Jesuits clothes and linens, all those sorts of things. And so there was a, you know, a bit of a difference between what the daily work looked like, but it was still the reality of being enslaved and given the nearness often moved back and forth between those two locales. How, how did things get better? That's, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Well, let me see, let's say it this way: the majority of it was black workers asserting their rights and mm-hmm. asserting their dignity, and really being the driving force behind civil rights between worker rights. The historian Kiona Irvin does a lot of really great work about St. Louis. One of the reasons she focuses on St. Louis, and this is some of what I'm trying to pick up on is St. Louis is simultaneously north, south, east, west, that it is the gateway to the west. It is sometimes called the um, the westernmost eastern city. It is right on the Mason-Dixon line, tries to identify as much as it can as the Midwest. And so it it brings with it the cultural identifiers from each of those areas. It is also one of the first service cities, we'll say, that it transitioned to a service-based economy from an industrial or manufacturing economy much earlier than many other cities. And part of that is the influence of the river. And so the how did things get better question is also St. Louis is doing some of this earlier than other places. 
you know, it's real fascinating. The Jesuits were very close with John T. Clark, who is president of the Urban League. You know, Clark did amazing work at some points with domestic workers, especially Black women domestic workers, helping guarantee certain pay, prevent sexual harassment in the workplace, those sorts of things, which was great. And then in World War II, you know, there was the boom of women entering manufacturing. And a lot of the Black women who had been doing domestic work said, we want those jobs. They're better paying. They are better hours. We face less harassment and discrimination. And Clark had this like, no, but you need to do this work because we've won so many rights here already. And so the relationship between Clark and the Jesuits there has not been examined yet. And so that's one of the areas that I want to look at in that question of how did things get better? Because there clearly was an advancement there, but then there was that hesitation. One of the other things that often gets talked about, too, is the desegregation of St. Louis University. And there are two Jesuits who are very involved in doing that work. The The university had a survey that was going to go out to white alumni asking them if they thought the school should desegregate or not. And it was very much kind of like those surveys that you see on the internet where it's like, do you love panda bears or do you love uh, tearing down food storage? And you're like, well, you can only pick one of them, obviously. And so the survey was written a bit like that. These two Jesuits leaked the survey to the press in advance and publicly embarrassed the university and have since been labeled kind of heroes among the Jesuits for it. But at the time, certainly were not. The one was exiled to Omaha, which I love Omaha. I went to school at Creighton for two years, but for them would have been seen as an exile. And so, you know, we talk about access to education. A lot of that is what are the types of education that Black people and that women were allowed to access at St. Louis University. And that was a big hinge point. That was a big turning point. But it was still the sort of thing of like, well, you can go to nursing school. And it, it was a little pejorative in many ways. Or you can become a typist. So a very gendered sense of what was acceptable education and very racially based sense of what was uh, the purpose of education. But nevertheless, it was a, a shift and a turning point. Sure. Moving our focus more to today, the, this podcast focuses on COVID and labor and Catholics. But one of the defining features of 2020 was the racial reckoning that is still ongoing in the U.S., what do you see as links in your own scholarships, looking at the intersection of race and class and worker justice and those topics today? Yeah, absolutely. So the the pandemic has been incredibly hard on working class individuals, whether it be from supply chain inflation issues to simply being late, not simply, but being laid off from the workplace. You know, for example, right now, there is a union drive going on at Loyola New Orleans among the campus dining workers down there and trying to get Sodexo to willingly recognize their union. So the university subcontracts with Sodexo for, for food service and dining halls. Food and service workers, especially at colleges and in the U.S., tend to overwhelmingly be people of color and tend to be immigrants, tend to be black people, tend to be... Uh, persons who do not have institutional power. Mm -hmm. So when campuses closed, those workers were suddenly 
out of a job. And it, it was a low paying job and it is a low paying job, but it was still a job. And so those suddenly disappeared. And it's kind of this like, well, what are we supposed to do? And we, we had some, you know, there were obviously like the payroll benefits from through the federal government, through some state and local governments as well. Those clearly worked, but we didn't continue doing them. And so it's this question of how are we as Jesuit institutions engaging that work for justice? Are we backing workers as they seek to unionize? Are we asking for people like Sodexo to be neutral? And so that's one of the big asks right now is asking the university to ask Sodexo be neutral in this vote so that you're not trying to influence workers. Because typically Sodexo and other big companies put a ton of pressure on workers to not unionize. Unionization has overwhelmingly been proven one of the best avenues for increasing the economic well-being for women and people of color. And so there's a real need for, I think, Jesuit institutions to be very active and engaged with that kind of work. You know, take, for example, Boston College has been, frankly, pretty challenging and pretty aggressive in their anti-union stance toward graduate workers. And this question of who does that harm, who does that benefit, and what is the outcome of that? You know, overwhelmingly, I saw that um, graduate workers who are immigrants, for example, have way less access to institutional well-being. So, for example, I, as a graduate worker, can have another job. Mm -hmm. Immigrants and people who are here on student visas cannot. And so the pandemic affected them. It affected underground economies. It affected access to, to your own stipend and things at universities. And so there are all sorts of different levels that I think we as Jesuit institutions need to be much more thoughtful and much more prayerful about, frankly. What do you think the Jesuit charism or Ignatian spirituality has to offer to the question of worker justice? You know, I, I think first and foremost, in many ways, is cure personalis, care of the whole person. That it's one of these like, yeah, we want you to pray and be holy, but it's really hard to do those things when you're trying to figure out how to feed your children. <laughs> so it's this question of do we care for the whole person and their entirety and their sense of self and their sense of community and their economic and material well-being, their spiritual well-being, that we have to take all of those things into consideration. And I don't know that we honestly do that very well. And in fact, I, I, I know we don't always do that very well, actually speaking. So I think the charism really pushes us to really consider who the whole person is and how we can be loving, how we can be justice-seeking. You know, we have this whole faith that does justice. We often are very engaged in doing that when the justice is away from our own institutions. Mm. When it's at our own institutions, we tend to falter. And so I think that is a, a space we need to really do some deeper discernment about. <laughs> and, you know, that's another piece of our charism. Discernment is about constantly listening for God's call. Mm -hmm. I think we sometimes get a little comfortable and a little easy with that discernment. And we don't ask for the majus. What more can we be doing? What greater justice, what greater care for the whole person can we be seeking? And I think our charism pushes us and we need to say yes to that. 
And it's scary to say yes to that because it's going to require more of us. It might require major lifestyle changes. It might require challenging the way universities operate in general. But it is something that I believe very dearly that we are being asked to do by the Holy Spirit. As someone who values faith doing justice, how does your scholarly work influence your current activism or Mm -hmm. faith doing justice in the present uh, while you look and study the past? Yeah, absolutely. So this is um, something I've been playing around with in the last couple of weeks that has shown up in my prayer that trying to figure out next steps of how to engage in some ways is uh, we love a good hero in Catholicism. We love a saint. We love someone who, you know, just was so clearly so good and so wonderful. And there are a lot of Jesuit saints who did a lot of different really wonderful things. And we use these hero stories, but sometimes it's a, well, then I'm good by association. (laughs) And it's, I think we miss the idea of the communion of saints, that we are all called to be saints. We are all saints right now, but we have to pursue that sainthood in a very clear communal way. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the challenges in our history is we have these great heroic figures who did really wonderful things. You have Dan Lord, who wrote dozens of theatrical plays about worker justice and did all these pageants about the relationship between faith and justice well before Arupe. Um, you know, Arupe didn't pop out of thin air. He's part of a, a buildup that's happening. Um, you have Jesuits who are opening and staffing labor colleges and helping people figure out how to organize in their communities. And we hold up heroic figures, but we didn't have the institutional investment that we should have had. And we didn't have the full communion of saints there with them. And so I think that's where my own study meets what we're doing today is, yes, these heroes and saints are wonderful. We should emulate them. Why couldn't they do more? And the why couldn't they do more is often because we said, that's great for Father Johnson. The rest of us are going to stay in this high school where we're pretty comfortable. And I think we need to be really honest about that today of how are we pursuing the communion of saints and how are we helping other pursue the communion of saints and pursue communal justice together? Sure. Do you have recommendations? (laughs) Yes and no. Um, I also believe in subsidiarity so that it is very dependent on each locale and that they need to do honest, good discernment themselves. But I, I know for a fact that teachers at five of our different Jesuit high schools are considering organizing unions because of how poorly they feel treated by administrations and because how taxed they feel and underpaid. You know, Catholic high schools by and large tend to pay less than public high schools, which have tend to have strong teacher unions. So, uh, you know, my recommendation is not only to just be like, oh, well, we increase pay and we, you know, tackle these things, but address the root issues there. Unions are ultimately about community. They're about belonging and togetherness and that search and strive for justice. Mm-hmm. I think we need to be better about that in most of the places that we work. I also think we need to be a little more forthright in the shortcomings of our educational models. That, you know, we have these big, powerful colleges, we have big 
powerful traditional prep schools. We have the Cristo Rey schools. We have Nativity Middle Schools, and they're wonderful. They do excellent work, and we should not diminish them at all. And we should ask, who are we missing? Who are we intentionally ignoring? Who falls through the gaps, and who do we sometimes push through the gap? I think we need to be much more forthright about our impact in communities. You know, every year we have this thing about like, oh, here are all the Jesuit members of Congress or Jesuit educated members of Congress. It's like, that's great. Do they actually reflect the Ignatian values they're supposed to have? The grad at grad. And I don't, I don't think we ask ourselves that question as potently as we should. Sure. No. As a historian, do you also consider what reparation for the past would look like? Mm -hmm. What have you come up with there? (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, the clearest answer I can give is what is the community calling for? Mm -hmm. What, what is the impacted and affected community saying we need? It is, it's my place as a historian to search for stories, to listen to stories, to help write those stories. It is not my place to come back to a community and say, based on this, X, Y, and Z will be most beneficial to you. That That is not a skill of mine. And that would be very both intellectually and spiritually dishonest for me to do. The honest work is saying, here are the stories I've discovered. Help me correct them. Help me add to them. Help me make them fuller stories more well-rounded stories. And then together, based on that, we can say what needs to be done. And those, the what needs to be done should be a reflection of the community and it should come from the community. It should not be a top-down thing. Do you see your work as intricately tied to justice? When I hear about it, I'm like, oh, it sounds like you are making the C and C Judge Act as full as it can be to enable judgment or discernment to enable better action. Is that, am I putting more? I think that's a, a very good analysis. Yeah, I think that's uh, pretty spot on. That's a great way of putting it as well. Thank you for that. Yeah, and I, I think also with that is helping develop the tools to do the judge part, to do the discernment part, and then be alongside during the action. You know, I... I'm involved right now with starting a new faith and labor organization that's just getting off the ground in the last year called the Interreligious Network for Worker Solidarity. Uh, We are working on rebranding a little bit. (laughs) It's a long name. But, you know, I, I am actively involved in a number of unionization campaigns and a number of workers' rights campaigns. And for me, it is to be there, to be alongside, to work alongside, and then with my academic work to really develop yeah, like you said, the C and the judge part. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Thank last- you. That's oh. a great observation. <laughs> last question, request. Um, if you could tell me a story about a favorite moment that you've had at work, or maybe it's not a good one, but it was a particularly notable one, you know, anywhere in your career, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, that's a, a really wonderful question. I think probably... One of my favorite moments was the summer before I entered the Jesuits, I got an internship through the Student Conservation Association. Um, They're a really great organization that does like trail building and engagement with public lands. And I worked at Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota for the summer. And the, the cave, the entrance is the traditional 
narrative, we'll say, a traditional emergent story for a number of Native and Indigenous peoples, Lakota, Nakota, Dakota, that the bison emerged from this cave. And so one day I was giving the tour. You typically have 40 people on the tour and um, standing by the, the cave entrances. And as I'm talking to the, to the crowd, I can see traditional prayer ribbons tied near the entrance to the cave. And for me, you know, we were told as part of our training, there are ceremonies that go on in the park. We do not tell visitors about them because we don't want to encroach on Native communities who are here to celebrate, here to pray. Mm -hmm. And so for me, seeing those prayer ribbons, that was my like one moment of like, oh, people are here praying. Like this is a, this is a very sacred space to people. And having that moment at work and having it in that context, but also having this like, do I tell the people who are on the tour, because we're not encroaching on anyone's prayer, but it is a very visible sign. And thankfully, a little, I would bet 10 or 11 year old was like, what are what are the ribbons doing in the tree? It's like, great. The, I, that question was answered for me. Now I can make this a teachable moment. Yeah, but it was just a, a really special moment to have to in some ways encounter somebody else's sense of sacred mm. that's wonderful yeah thank you for talking with me today yeah thank you thank you so much for the invitation to be here all who labor is recorded in the fordham light center a special thanks to fordham center on religion and culture for their support in the creation of this project if you want to learn more about catholics covid and labor Make sure to subscribe for future episodes and check out at all.who.labor.pod on Instagram. Thanks for listening. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1833. That was the day that the Oberlin Collegiate Institute was founded in North Central Ohio. Today, it's known as Oberlin College. The college was the project of two Presbyterian ministers, John J. Seifert and Philo Stewart. Their goal was to form a college based on Christian principles. In the early days, tuition was free and students were expected to give their labor to help sustain the school and community. The college motto, learning and labor, harkens back to that time. From early on, the college was different than many other institutions of higher learning of its day. In 1835, Oberlin became the first predominantly white college to admit black male students. Two years later, Oberlin broke new ground again, letting in women and becoming the first co-ed college in the nation. By opening its doors to black and women enrollees, Oberlin gave these students a chance to study and pursue careers that might otherwise have been closed to them. By the turn of the 20th century, one-third of all black professionals in the United States had graduated from Oberlin. In 1862, Mary Jane Patterson became the first African-American woman to earn her bachelorette degree from Oberlin. She became a teacher and principal. Another black graduate, John Mercer Langston, would become the first black lawyer in Ohio and first black congressman to represent Virginia in Washington, D.C. Oberlin College was also known for its stance supporting the abolition of slavery and later supporting civil rights. The school was a stop on the 
Underground Railroad, which helped enslaved people escape into freedom to Canada. And to this day, the Oberlin community is still on the cutting edge of opportunity and change. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, like it in your podcast app, pass it along, leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to All Who Labor, a thought-provoking podcast about labor history, justice, and the Jesuits. Find it at laborradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our music today was Joe Hill's classic, The Preacher and the Slave, performed here by Mischief Brew. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor arts news. Subscribe to the Labor Heritage Foundation's weekly newsletter at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. Bye.